From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Roth. And I'm Tracy McRae. While treatable, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, remains the third leading cause of death in the U.S., In an effort to highlight the best treatment options, new findings and recommendations were recently released from the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease. On today's program, we'll learn more about COPD from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, understanding the dangerous and sometimes deadly illness, sepsis. And we'll get an update on advances in human genome research from the National Institutes of Health. That's this week's program. Up next. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, is a chronic inflammatory lung disease that causes obstructed airflow from the lungs. Symptoms include breathing difficulty, cough, mucus production, and wheezing. It's a progressive disease caused by long-term exposure to lung irritants, most often from cigarette smoke. Yes, people with COPD are at an increased risk of developing heart disease, lung cancer, and a variety of other conditions. While there is no cure for COPD, recently released guidelines show that treatment options have improved. November is recognized as COPD Awareness Month. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic pulmonologist Dr. Paul Scanlon. Welcome to the program, Dr. Scanlon. It's nice to meet you. Good morning. It's nice to be here. So what is it that causes COPD? I've always, like we said in the intro, just thought of it as a cigarette, a smoking-related problem. Uh, in the majority of cases in developed countries, about 80, 80 to 85% of people who have COPD have it primarily because of cigarette smoking. It can also be caused by other exposures and as a long-term sequel of asthma and some other conditions. But uh, you can, for all practical purposes, you can think of this as a smoking-related condition in the United States. Uh, in developing countries, it's often a disease attributable to uh, use of biomass fuel burned in the home, Mm. either for cooking or for heating. So that's in uh, developing countries. But in in developed countries, it's primarily related to cigarette smoking. And what what is actually happening in the lungs when somebody has COPD? Well, the lungs are injured by this long-term exposure to irritants, and so uh, it can affect the airways, uh, causing uh, mucus hypersecretion and narrowing and bronchospasm in the airways. Um, And it can cause damage to the lung parenchyma, the tissue of the lung, um, uh, causing basically burning holes in your lungs, uh, which is what emphysema is. And it continues. I mean, if you have COPD, I would imagine that there is no cure for COPD. Well, actually, um, in the past, people have been very pessimistic about talking about COPD. This is a long-term incurable condition Mm -hmm. that's, you know, uh, relentlessly progressive, et cetera. In fact, um, that pessimism of the past is, is pretty much out of date. Um, there's, there's excellent treatment for uh, COPD. Uh, the majority of people who have COPD have mild COPD that uh, will, get better, will get better or stabilize with simply smoking cessation. Um, people who have more advanced COPD are treatable. Uh, it, it is a very treatable condition. So with appropriate therapy, people even with fairly advanced stage COPD can have improvement in their uh, symptoms, their shortness of breath, their cough, their sputum production. They can improve their quality of life, their exercise tolerance. They can reduce the frequency of exacerbations, which are chest colds that uh, people with COPD can get that cause worsening symptoms can be life-threatening if severe, um, but are, are treatable, as I said. 
We'll talk a little bit more about treatment in just a moment, but what are the symptoms? Um, as Ian said, symptoms are shortness of breath or dyspnea, cough, sputum production, and wheezing. Those are the most common symptoms. There are comorbidities or uh, other conditions that develop in conjunction with this, such as heart disease and lung cancer and other cancers and other comorbidities, uh, which have their own symptoms, but COPD itself is characterized by those symptoms. How would you uh, diagnose COPD? I mean, not everybody who who has a, a chronic cough would necessarily have COPD, right? How would you know? Right. Um, typically, people who have COPD have those symptoms, and the correct diagnosis is predicated on uh, presence of symptoms, um, certain physical findings, but most importantly, there's a test called spirometry, a lung function test, that in people with COPD shows evidence of airways obstruction. If you don't have airways obstruction, you don't actually have COPD. You might have chronic bronchitis, you might have emphysema, but you don't actually fit the def- definition of COPD and don't uh, we don't treat that as COPD in the absence of air, airflow obstruction. Unfortunately, there's been historically fairly sloppy practice in the medical community. People will make a, an erroneous diagnosis of COPD based on symptoms alone without measuring lung function, without showing evidence of airflow obstruction. So there's a lot of people that get treated for COPD inappropriately. And likewise, there are also people who have COPD that are never diagnosed because they don't have the appropriate testing done. So there's both overdiagnosis and underdiagnosis. So COPD, emphysema, bronchitis, what are, do those things all, like you said, they get mistakenly diagnosed for each other? There's a Venn diagram, a diagram <laughs> that's overlapping circles. Some people with, many people with emphysema and chronic bronchitis have airflow obstruction. Some actually don't have airflow obstruction. They have other conditions or they can have uh, some degree of emphysema without having much in the way of airflow obstruction. If you're a smoker and you know that this is something that could develop over time, I think the tendency for people, they know they should be quitting smoking, but they convince themselves, well, I haven't been smoking long enough to get a disease like COPD or something. How long does it usually take to develop if somebody is a smoker before they start dealing with COPD? Well, it can develop at at, uh, different rates for different people. It's not inevitable. About 50% of people who smoke will eventually develop some evidence of uh, emphysema or chronic bronchitis or COPD airflow obstruction. Um, it's between a quarter and a half of people who smoke who develop COPD. So the, the good news is not everybody who smokes develops COPD, but they're also at risk of developing uh, lung cancer and uh, heart disease and other comorbidities. Um, so it's not necessarily good news if you smoke and have normal spirometry. That doesn't put, put you off the hook. Everybody who, quit, who smokes should quit. It's the single worst thing you can do for your health. Uh, growing up, I just always uh, thought that emphysema and COPD, and maybe that's just because that's what my relatives had told me, you know, mm-hmm. the relatives that smoked, they ended up having one of these different things. So they all kind of got lumped in together. The distinctions between those are sort of fine points that doctors debate about and argue about, but uh, from a practical standpoint for the consumer the or the smoker or the non-smoker who's concerned about it, um, there, there's enough overlapping that you can think of them as more or less the same. So peop, most people who have emphysema have COPD. Most people who have COPD have at least some degree of emphysema. 
when we talk about a lot of topics on this program, Americans live longer. Does that mean that more people are being diagnosed with COPD? Uh, it's really a function of how many people smoke. So the good news is fewer people smoke nowadays than in the past. Uh, the peak of the smoking epidemic was in the late 1960s. Since then, the prevalence of smoking in the population has gone from nearly 50% down to the low 20% range. Um, so fewer people smoke, fewer people are at risk of developing COPD. Um, but still, there's millions of people who have COPD who are dealing with it. The good news uh, in, in that is the majority of people who have COPD have mild COPD that is treatable, smoking cessation plus or minus a bronchodilator. On the other hand, people with uh, more advanced stage COPD require more advanced therapy. So, Dr. Scanlon, we'll talk about treatment and prevention. Let's start with this myth or matter of fact. Exercise is impossible if you have COPD. Is that a myth or a fact? Myth. In fact, it's the opposite of the truth. Uh, for people with COPD, uh, exercise is maybe one of the second or third most important things you can do. The most important thing is to quit smoking if you still smoke and to take good care of your lungs. But uh, exercise is very important. It's, an, it's a critical element of a, a pulmonary rehabilitation program for people who who uh, have COPD, the, uh, along with appropriate medication, uh, regular exercise is one of the most important things they can do to improve their exercise tolerance, improve their quality of life, uh, and improve their general uh, health. I can imagine, though, that uh, a patient says, I can hardly breathe the way it is, and you want me to exercise? Yeah. So how does someone with lung difficulty like COPD, a lung diagnosis like that, go about exercising? In the pulmonary rehabilitation program, we, uh, we train people how to breathe uh, more effectively and breathe better and uh, um, uh, how to treat themselves more appropriately, how to, uh, and, and that includes exercise, how to do staged exercise, starting at what you're capable of and then building up your endurance, in, uh, both in terms of distance and time. Excellent. Well, let's talk about those um, guidelines for treatment that have changed a little bit. How have they changed? Oh, there's uh, relatively fine points of, uh, of change and over the years. The original uh, guidelines came out in 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, they're called the GOLD guidelines. Gold, uh, GOLD is an acronym for Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. Uh, and it's a group of experts from the United States and Europe mainly, um, or mostly pulmonary physicians, who uh, review the scientific literature and uh, make recommendations in terms of what is the appropriate details in terms of the diagnosis and treatment, both for stable chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and for exacerbations of COPD, and what are the important comorbidities of the other conditions that need to be concerned about. You kind of mentioned before, but what are some of the other treatment options for somebody who has COPD? Well, the, um, in addition to smoking cessation, which is, as I said, is the most important thing, and I'll repeat that endlessly. It's, you know, it's, get, get to the point of being boring, but it's the most important message. Um, there are uh, bronchodilator medications and anti-inflammatory medications that uh, open up the airways, reduce the inflammation in the, in the, the lungs and uh, both uh, uh, improve the performance of the lungs and reduce the likelihood of developing exacerbations. If somebody does quit smoking after they've been diagnosed with COPD, is there a chance that COPD would go away? Uh, is this something that you can cure, or 
it um, it doesn't actually go away. The, you can look at the lung function over time, and um, our lungs grow like the rest of us. So we reach our full lung maturity between age 20 and 25. Lung function is stable between age 20 or 25 up to about 35 or 40. And after about age 35 or 40, lung function, like most bodily function, gradually deteriorates over time but it slowly deteriorates to the point that uh, at age 80, 90 or so, most people who have taken good care of their lungs have plenty of good lung function. Uh, the lungs are designed to outlast us. If you smoke and if you're a susceptible smoker, lung function declines more rapidly. So about half of, a quarter to a half of people who smoke uh, have a more rapid decline in lung function and are uh, headed in a trajectory that they'll get into trouble with impaired lung function as they get to a more advanced age. And you asked earlier, at what age can this develop? It can develop as early as age 35 or 40. Uh, and most commonly, it develops at a somewhat later stage, but 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, and so forth. Um, lung function declines, and once you reach that point, the, the lung function is significantly impaired. Now, in answer to your question, can it get better? Uh, the results of the lung health study, of which we were uh, one of the participating centers, showed that um, the, the hypothesis of the lung, fun- lung health study was that uh, lung function, if you get people to quit smoking, lung function will stabilize, and that was shown to be the case. Lung function does stabilize and goes down at a much slower rate after smoking cessation. But we also found, uh, interestingly, that lung function does improve a little bit at the time of smoking cessation. So during the first year after quitting smoking, lung function improves a little bit. It's a few percent. Interestingly, it's about twice as much in women as it is in men when they quit smoking. Um, so lung function does improve a little bit, not to normal, but to a little bit better, and then most importantly stabilizes and dec- declines at a normal rate after smoking cessation. Do people with COPD, uh, are they eligible for a lung transplant? Lo- uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is one of the most common indications for lung transplantation. So uh, it would be nice to say everybody who develops bad COPD can just get a lung transplant, right. but in fact there's a terrible shortage of, of appropriate organs for transplantation. So the number of lung transplants we can do is in the very small numbers. Um, so it is a possibility, but it's a relatively uncommon uh, possibility. I would imagine for people who smoke, I mean, you start smoking in this country, you know that you shouldn't be smoking and that it's bad for your health and et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine when you start having trouble breathing, serious trouble breathing, that has to be a pretty big encouragement for someone to quit smoking. Do you see that that happens to people with COPD? Well, everybody eventually quits smoking by one, by hook or by crook, um, <laughs> by, by desire or not. So um, they, everyone eventually quits smoking, and um, we like to encourage people to quit smoking at the earliest possible date before they're symptomatic, before they develop problems. Um, the worse they get, the more motivation there is to quit. And we always uh, counsel people to quit smoking as the most important intervention they can do to preserve their health. What, what kind of research is going on on COPD to uh, improve treatments or prevention, or what can we hope for in the future? Uh, well, there's quite a bit of research in COPD. The organizations that uh, help promote them in the United States, uh, the largest funding source for COPD research is the National Institutes of Health. There are a number of research studies that are done that are funded by pharmaceutical companies 
testing and trying new, uh, new treatments for COPD. Um, so there's a lot of research going on. Uh, it's reported in the scientific literature by uh, organizations, uh, promoted by organizations such as the American Thoracic Society and the American, um, American Heart Association, interestingly, as an important source of funding for research funds for COPD um, and the American College of Chess Physicians. So. I love it when we have our awareness months because I get to use my joke about, you know, a cake and a card. But how important is something like uh, an awareness month for COPD? I mean, I would imagine family members and patients are very aware of what's going on, but does it help to spread awareness? Yeah, um, awareness always helps um, and uh, kind of highlighting the importance of the appropriate uh, interventions to to treat, to prevent and treat uh, COPD and other diseases. So sure, it helps. Um, in the end, it's always up to the individual to decide what to do for their health, but uh, a reminder is always worthwhile. November is COPD Awareness Month, and we've been talking about treatment and prevention of COPD with Mayo Clinic expert Dr. Paul Scanlon. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Scanlon. You're welcome. Thanks. It's been great. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, understanding sepsis and the latest advances in human genome research. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at Mayo Clinic News Network at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Stroke is a medical emergency. The faster you get treatment, the better your chances are of recovering. Mayo Clinic experts say women who have stroke symptoms should not delay seeking treatment. They say some women don't realize the symptoms could be life-threatening and don't get the care they need in time. So women, even young women, listen up and learn about your risk of stroke. Dr. Maisha Robinson says risk factors for women are essentially the same as they are for men, but there are differences, particularly for pregnant women and women on the pill, because they have an increased risk of stroke. Sometimes, particularly in younger women, the stroke symptoms are not recognized as quickly as we would hope that they would be, says Dr. Robinson. She says prompt treatment of symptoms improves your chances of recovery. Symptoms include difficulty talking, walking or thinking, sudden vision changes, sudden severe headache or numbness or paralysis. If symptoms happen, call 911 no matter how old you are. And to prevent stroke, you should manage health issues that increase your risk, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, excess weight, and inactivity. And if you smoke, stop. In other news, fitness is important for your physical and mental well-being, but many people start fitness programs and then stop when they get bored. Don't enjoy it or the results come too slowly. So here are seven tips to help you stay motivated and reach your fitness goals. Number one, set goals. Start with simple goals and then progress to longer range goals. It's easy to get frustrated and give up if your goals are too ambitious. Number two, make it fun. Find sports or activities that you enjoy and then vary the routine to keep it interesting. Three, make physical activity part of your daily routine. Schedule workouts as appointments. Four, put it on paper. Writing your goals down on paper may help you stay motivated. Five, join forces with friends, neighbors, or others. Invite people to work out with you. 
Six, reward yourself. After each exercise session, take a few minutes to savor the good feelings that exercise gives you. This can help you make a long-term commitment to regular exercise. And number seven, be flexible. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Ian Roth. And I'm Tracy McRae. Sepsis is the body's extreme response to an infection. It can be life-threatening, and without timely treatment, sepsis can rapidly cause tissue damage, organ failure, even death. Sepsis happens when an infection you already have in your skin, your lungs, your urinary tract, or somewhere else, triggers a chain reaction throughout your body. Wow. Anyone can develop sepsis, but it's most common and most dangerous in older adults or those with weakened immune systems. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic pulmonologist and critical care specialist, Dr. Alice Gallo. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you again, Dr. Hi. Gallo. Thank you for having me again. So explain uh, what's happening with sepsis and why do older people get it more often? Okay. So very good question. So what happens in sepsis is our body always will try to fight an infection. For people to develop sepsis means that the body kind of overreacted to it, which is very common in elderly, actually, and people with weakened immune systems, so people who are getting chemo, people who are getting uh, steroids for other diseases, and actually very common in babies, too. So what happens is it's just the body overreacts, and for some reason with that, the organs start failing, other organs start failing afterwards. What kind of symptoms would you normally see with sepsis? So sepsis, you would see high fever, so above 38.3 Celsius or above 100.4 Fahrenheit. Your heart rate, your heart starts racing, so heart rate above 100, 110. And you also start getting, uh, your breathing gets really uh, fast, so above 22 breaths per minute, which is, which is very high. Is sepsis the same thing as septic shock? So no. So septic shock is kind of like the next level of sepsis. Usually if someone comes into the hospital with sepsis, we give them fluids, so IV fluids to rehydrate them, and people usually get better. The ones that don't get better need extra medication to keep the heart pumping and the blood pressure up, and that's when, septic, that's when we call them septic shock, when they need extra medications to keep their blood pressure up. Those medications are called vasopressors. How, how would you diagnose sepsis? Because those symptoms sound like they could be associated with a lot of other things. Any infection could actually cause that. But then when people start getting their blood pressure low, um, when they start getting alter mental status, so a family member will usually say, my mom was pretty sharp until this morning, and then all of a sudden she is not making sense. So that's pretty common. When they stop making urine or make less urine, so that tells us that the kidneys are failing, that's when we are like we think that sepsis, because we it makes us think that the other organs are failing. Is that why I've only ever heard of septic shock and not sepsis? Because it could end up being a lot of different things, mm -hmm. and it usually goes undiagnosed until you're septic shock. Very likely. Uh -huh. So usually, usually people who just need the hospital, they are in sepsis. But if they need us in the ICU, they're likely in septic shock, and they need extra intervention, so extra medications, not only the antibiotics that we use to treat the infection. How common is sepsis? So it's around 200,000 cases in the U.S. per year, so it's pretty common. It's, like I said before, most common in kids and elderly, so older than 65, and also patients any age that have a weakened immune system for whatever reason. That's a pretty high number. Mm -hmm. How often do you have patients with sepsis? Is it at least once a week? or? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a daily a thing daily that we thing. see in the ICU. It's a, it's a daily disease that we see in the ICU, probably two or three a day. 
in the ICU. Does it develop really rapidly? Yeah, it's, it's usually hours. It's very quickly. So what's the treatment? You always have to treat the underlying infection and also make sure that you are preventing the other organs from failing. So we give the fluids to prevent the kidneys from shut down. We give the pressors, the medication, to keep the blood pressure up so blood flow continues to go to the brain, continues to go to the other organs, kind of like damage control after they already developed sepsis, septic shock. I mean, it sounds like a pretty frightening thing that anybody would want to prevent. What can people do to prevent so very good question. So like you said, any infection, and we have some, some bacteria in our skin that can actually cause sepsis if you get a cut. So make sure you're always washing your hands. Make sure that, that you, you get your annual check with your primary. Make sure that, that you don't need any of those immunosuppressants medications. So, What's your typical sepsis patient if this is happening at least once a day? What typically happens, and what is the timeline of it if it goes so quickly? Typical patient is... 65, 70 years old, men and women equally affected. And usually they came into the hospital because they had pneumonia, they had a urinary tract infection, and despite receiving IV fluid, and their blood pressure still is lower than normal. So the, the high pressure, lower than 90 normally. Usually a couple of hours we can see that happening because we need to give those fluids in within an hour and then they come to the ICU. After that, then we just have to make sure that we give the extra medications to keep their blood pressure up. If what's happening is your organs start to shut down yes. if you go into septic shock, mm -hmm. if you can stop that, why is it not happening again? The successful cases we have is because we were able to control the initial infection. Mm -hmm. We work very closely with our pharmacists here at Mayo to make sure that we're doing good antibiotic stewardship. But we're starting to hear these stories about the person had infection, they were given antibiotics, and the antibiotics didn't work because of antibiotic resistance. Is that trouble in the world of sepsis? Absolutely. So that's one of, because of we are using antibiotics so much in the outpatient setting, we are creating a lot of resistant bacteria to our regular antibiotics. So what we do then when they come in with sepsis and they need an ICU, we kind of give them antibiotics that will cover basically any bug that is out there. And then once we start getting results back of, of blood cultures or, or phlegm, we, we check the phlegm to see what bacteria we're dealing with, then we start narrowing it down so we can do, continue like to do um, good antibiotic stewardship. If, if I have a, a parent or grandparent or relative I come into the hospital with and, and the doctor comes out and tells us that they have sepsis now, how worried should I be at that point? If it's just sepsis and is within an hour, you have to be worried because they're sick, but not overly worried. If you hear the word septic shock, the combination of words septic shock, then, then it's worrisome. We've been talking about sepsis with Mayo Clinic critical care specialist, Dr. Alice Gallo. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gallo. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about advances in human genome research from a National Institutes of Health expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The Human Genome Project was an international collaborative research program whose goal was the complete mapping and understanding of all the genes of human beings. All our genes together are known as our genome. We all have one. 
With the human genome sequence complete since April of 2003, scientists around the world have access to a database that helps accelerate the pace of biomedical research and in turn improves patient care. And here to discuss the medical advancements in the 15 years since the Human Genome Project was completed is the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute and the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Eric Green. Welcome to the program, Dr. Green. Happy to be here. This is um, an amazing new world, and it's 15 years that we've been talking about genetics. Reading that script, that was surprising to me. Well, actually, we were talking about genetics for much longer. Sure. We've been talking about genomics only for about 30 years because that's how young the field is. But you point out a really important historic milestone, which happened 15 years ago when we completed this audacious effort called the Human Genome Project, which at its core was about reading out the letters in the human genome. The human genome is all of our DNA. It's our blueprint. So this was our first real readout of what what, what, what were those letters and how were they ordered, because it's the order of the letters that contain all the information for making and operating a human being. How does knowing that human genome affect patient care? Why does it matter? Well, so much of medicine, and I'm a physician, uh, and I learned this in medical school, so much of what we were taught in medical school is about treatments that work for the average patient, because that's the best we can do. The problem is none of us is average. Every one of us is unique. And one of the differences, or many of the differences, that between any two of us are slight um, changes in our DNA, in our genomes, just, just different letters at certain positions. In fact, we differ about one out of a thousand of these letters. And what we know as physicians is people are not average, but up until now we've not really had the way to look into their blueprint and figure out how each of us is unique. That's now changing because we now have the fundamental knowledge of the human genome, and importantly, we've developed technologies for being able to routinely read out a patient's genome And now we are slowly but surely figuring out how to look at those differences and make medical decisions based on it. You brought up an important point there. This this was an an audacious project at the beginning to originally map the genome, but since then, technology has improved. We've come a long way since then. What advancements have we had since the original uh, plan to map the genome? Well, I mean, it's been a spectacular 15 years. I mean, if I just gave you a highlight reel, the the first thing we did is we developed ways for sequencing the genome for determining the letters, reducing the cost a million fold. That first sequence of a human genome cost about a billion dollars. We can now do it for about a thousand dollars. And a thousand dollars is a very reasonable clinical test. And so now this means you could really use this uh, for clinical care. Second thing we did is we used those technologies and we've gone from sequencing one human genome to sequencing hundreds of thousands of genomes and making that data, those differences among all those people around the world available to scientists. So we have catalogs of the most common differences, different spellings in our genomes. We've layered on top of that a a growing knowledge of how does the genome work. There was one comment you made in the introduction about the Human Genome Project that implied, and, and I know you didn't mean it, but it implied that the Genome Project was about understanding all the features of our genome. It really was just the most early understanding In fact, just laying out those letters was the beginning of probably what will be a multi-generational challenge of understanding, interpreting all of those three billion letters that are in our genome. But we've made progress in the first 15 years. And then importantly, as it relates to medicine, as we've begun to use this technology and this knowledge for being able to figure out which of these spelling differences play a role in our health and disease. And we're learning a lot about the DNA basis of many diseases. 
Why is this a multi-generational process? That's an interesting word to use, but explain yeah. that well, a little I, bit you know, more. It's part of it is to manage expectations. I mean, we, I mean, first of all, I sometimes make analogies to the literature, you know, famous novels or, or, or you know, great Shakespearean plays. We still have scholars interpreting those, and that's many generations later. So that we're, the human genome consists of four building blocks that we abbreviate GATC, and there's three billion of them. And it's in, in some sort of fancy code. It's the order of the G-A-T-C-C-A-G-G-D-C. Somehow encodes all the information necessary for life. And we barely understand how it does that. We've, we've figured out the genes. The genes are building blocks in our genome that code for proteins. Uh, or the genes code for proteins, which are the building blocks of our cells. And we know that inventory is about 20,000. But you know what? It, the complexity is much greater than our genes it turns out we have all sorts of circuitry and dimmer switches in, embedded in those letters that determine where, when, and how much genes get used by different cells at different stages in your body or how you react to the environment and so forth. It is really complicated. And we just have to be realistic. We've only viewed these 3 billion ordered letters for 15 years. We probably know 10% of what we need to know. I, I think my children and my grandchildren will be interpreting the human genome and figuring out how it works. How does having that information help a patient with a disease? I mean, yeah, give us some examples of oh, that. Oh, so there's some vivid examples. Uh, so first of all, let's talk about cancer. Um, cancer is going to be the earliest area of medicine um, affected by genomic advances. Why is that? Cancer is a disease of the genome. The reason cells grow out of control and form tumors is because their DNA, their genomes have picked up changes that make those cells grow out of control. We can now easily read out the letters of the genome of a cancer in that particular patient, in a given patient, and learn a lot about their specific cancer. And from that, we're slowly being able to use that information to better tailor their care. So much of cancer treatment up until now has been imprecise. We just try sign if it doesn't work, we try sign else. If it doesn't work, we try sign else. We're now being able to upfront have information based on the unique genomic derangements in each cancer. It's just early days, but that's going to be a huge growth area in the next 10 years. It's one area. Second area, rare diseases. We are now to a point that if you have a patient, you don't know what is wrong with them. You sequence their genome. In a third to half the time already, you can figure out what's wrong with them. That is just mind-boggling. Six years ago, we thought that was impossible. You can do that with rare diseases because rare diseases usually have a single genomic change that causes the disease. And then pharmacology and, and combined with genomics. Why is it that some people respond really well to the same medication as other people who respond incredibly poorly? Why is it? It's just imprecise. We're learning that there's slight spelling differences in each of our genomes that influence how we metabolize drugs. And so we're getting to the point and putting the two words together. It's pharmacogenomics, big word. But it's basically before you make a decision about whether to give a patient drug A or B or C, learn about their genome, read out their genome, and better select whether it's A or B or C based on their unique genomic makeup. Okay, well, if you've got cancer is one of the reasons or some strange disease that you can't figure out is another one, maybe not everybody needs to have their genome sequenced until you get to that pharmacogenomics point. And almost everyone takes some medication or will. So should everyone talk to their doctor about getting their genome sequenced, or where are we at in that Process. I think where we're at is, while I've given you highlight examples, um, even with pharmacogenomics, it's not that we know for every drug 
the genomic variants to look for to dictate which is the best medication or not a good medication to give them. We're getting there. Um, so I would say we're not quite there, but I believe in the coming years when we'll reach a threshold where there'll be enough examples, enough uses that people will upfront get their genome sequenced and have it be part of their electronic medical record. But, but nowadays, if you're going about to get one of those medications where it's indicated, people are getting pharmacogenomic testing done. Or if you're, you have a patient with a rare disease or patients with cancer increasing, they're getting genome sequenced. What's the biggest obstacle to applying genetic testing to uh, everyday practice that a physician has? Probably the biggest obstacle is we're not quite at the threshold where where genomic information will really influence what most patients come to see their doctors about. And by that, I mean, I, I talked about rare diseases as one category diseases, but rare diseases don't account for most hospital and clinic visits. It's common diseases, hypertension, diabetes, Alzheimer's, autism, cardiovascular disease, mental illness, et cetera. The problem with common diseases is they don't have a single genomic cause. Rather, it's multiple spelling differences in an individual's genome coupled to environmental, social, lifestyle features. And it's, that's complicated. And so we're not quite to a point of being able to predict. Maybe someday we will get to a point where we can sequence a patient's genome and say, wow, you are really at risk for getting diabetes. Let's alter your life in such and such. Or, wow, you really might be hypertensive. Let's have an early intervention. I'm convinced we will get there for some disorders. But in order to figure that out, we need to have much better predictive models. How do you get those predictive models? You need to do very large studies. That's why here in the United States, we're doing the All of Us Research Program. A million Americans are volunteering to be part of a big study. Multiple other countries are doing the same thing. We need to get data in the, uh, from hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, genomic data, lifestyle data, electronic health record data, data collected from Fitbits and other mobile sensors. And we need to crunch all that data in a way that we'll be able to tease out small contributions to disease and will help us understand the multifactorial nature of most diseases that physicians see. What will it take and how long before we can routinely walk into our healthcare provider get sequenced, and have their provider look at the results, make a diagnosis, or prescribe a therapy based on that genetics code? How far away are we from that? So I think it depends on the circumstance. For some things, that's becoming routine. Um, for some kinds of cancer, yes. For certain medications, yes. For a rare disease, yes. One thing we didn't talk about for pregnancy, the number one genomic medicine application today is, uh, is the use of something called non-invasive prenatal testing, where women who had traditionally gone through invasive procedures like amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling to get access to fetal DNA to look for genetic abnormalities during pregnancy now don't need to do that anymore. A simple blood draw from a pregnant mom provides access to little bits of fetal DNA that naturally float around in the maternal bloodstream. And these incredibly powerful methods for sequencing DNA can be used to test mom's blood and will detect the same range of abnormalities that otherwise you required more invasive procedures. It is now predicted that worldwide there'll be four to six million pregnant women who get this non-invasive prenatal test done in the next year. That's the number one most used genomic test in the world. We've been talking about the human genome with the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, Dr. Eric Green. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Green. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. 
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.